0: If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. If you're wondering if you've ever heard that song before, uh, it, it it sounds familiar. It's, it sounds like something you you would have sung before, but you, you haven't. Uh, that's, in a, that's an original hymn that, that Gregory's written for us to use in worship, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, today, we're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus before before, though, we read the parable, I want to I I set the scene on this just a little bit um, because you might recall a, a few weeks back, we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, if you weren't here, that's okay, um, but, but that's where we were like two weeks ago. And in, and in that one, we heard the call of Jesus to, to steward well the resources that God has entrusted to us, to use the things, the gifts, uh, the talents, the, the financial, the material, to use all of those things in order to advance his kingdom in this world. or to use the material leverage that he has given us in order to advance his kingdom. We pray uh, for that each week. When and, and Eric prayed for that even just this Sunday, that, that God would use what we return to him, those first fruits that we return back to him. That he would use us to advance his kingdom here in Lexington. We, we really want that. We want God to, to bless that offering each week and to, and to take it and to, and to use it in, in whatever way he can, by God's creativity. God's far, far more creative than we are. That he would use those things to make disciples of all people. I, I know in our community group, the night... This is not just a shameless plug, by the way, for community groups, although you should get in one. Um, in our community group that night, it was, one of, it was one of the best, most uncomfortable conversations I've been in in a long time. And I mean that in, in the most honest sense I can say it, in that we were having to challenge one another in this. Because this is not easy. We were, we were questioning whether or not we actually see the homes, the cars, the bank accounts. Do we see those things as, as actually belonging to us, or are those are those things that have been entrusted to us by God for the sake of the kingdom. That's not as superficial as we might like it to be. This is a tough thing. Do I understand that the house that I live in, the home that my family has been given, do I understand that that is supposed to be a hub for gospel ministry? That that is an outpost in the mission field of God's advancing of his kingdom. Do I understand the car that I drive each day to work? Do I understand that as, as just a vehicle or is that a literally a vehicle of the gospel? That wherever it takes me, it takes a disciple of Jesus Christ with it. Therefore, I am preaching the gospel wherever I go. Do I understand the car that I drive in that way? Do we see our bank accounts as our future or do we see those as opportunities to engage in right now because who knows what tomorrow will bring? These are the ways that we're challenged, that Jesus challenged us in that passage. And these are tough questions. Jesus does not take it back. He, he, doesn't, or he doesn't take it easy on us. He doesn't hold back. He goes right after our hearts. And those people understood him. The people who were listening to him in that parable, they understood him. But right after he said that, he, right after he said, you cannot serve God and money, we're told that the Pharisees, this is what it says next, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. They scoffed at him. They turned up their, that's what it means is that they turned up their noses at him. It's, it's like when a child, when you say something and a child goes, huh? This is the way the Pharisees looked at Jesus. Like, are you crazy? My, I don't, maybe you're, my, my, my kids are the only ones who do that. I get that look a lot. All right. Are you serious? I mean, my son will do that to me three times a day. And I have to go, am I right on this? I'm not sure. Jesus is right. He's right. And yet they scoffed him, they turned up their noses at him. Because these were folks who were exalted among men already, they had achieved status, they had position. And so what in the world is this man going to really teach them? Because, because they were good. And our parable today comes right on the heels of that. It comes right out of that same context. And hopefully you'll see some points of connection in here. So what I want to do now is I want to invite you to stand with me as we look to God's word. I want you to stand with me because in this moment, uh, the king is speaking. In this moment right now, these next few verses, you will hear nothing more important this, this day than what is about to be said to you. This is Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them This is a tough passage. And so what I'd pray now is that you would help us to do it justice. Lord, I pray that you would, in every way possible, move me aside. I I need you to do that. I need you to just shift me over out of the way and, and speak that we might hear you. I pray that you will open up our deaf ears. I pray that you will give us sight in our blind eyes, Lord, and I pray that you would awaken our souls this morning, that whatever distractions of this world we carried in here with us, Lord, that you would remove those from our mind. God, I need you to do that for me, and so I'm guessing that's true of others in this room, that we come in here with a lot on our minds. So I pray that you would help us in these next few moments to just hear from you with our whole hearts, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please be seated. What we see here uh, is, is that Jesus is continuing to work through what we might call a, a theology of prosperity. He's pressing in on those who are enjoying the riches of this world. And in this parable, there is, it's not a really a veiled image for us to try and understand or interpret. Okay? The, the embodiment of the life of prosperity, the, the one who represents uh, material abundance, is simply called a rich man. We're not having to dig too deep in there to figure out what, what that represents. He's a rich man. That word for rich is not ambiguous. It means spiritually. It means materially wealthy. That's what it means. This man has a lot of money and the description of how he lives paints the picture for us. It says that he was clothed in purple and fine linen, right? Purple is the color of royalty. It's the color of fame. It's the color of fortune. It's the color that you wear when you want to make a statement about who you are and where you come from. It's clothing that's made from the purple dye of, of, a, of a small sea snail. And so it's, it's right? That's odd, right? So it's, it's rare and it's exotic. It's exotic to wear the purple label. We're, we're told that the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. Don't miss that. It's not just that he feasted every once in a while. It's not that he, did, that he went big on Saturday or, or Friday. No, no, it, he went big every night. To feast sumptuously is to feast luxuriously. is to be overly extravagant to the point of of being wasteful. That's the idea there. The the root of that word in the original language is actually uh, the word lampros. Lampros. It's it's, it's the same word that that we use to to mean shine forth. To feast sumptuously means to to want people to see this. It's the same word that we use to get the, the modern word lamp. It's to, it's to illuminate yourself, to point the attention, to focus the spotlight on me so everyone can see what's happened. Beyond that, we know that this man has a gate, he has a gate to his home to keep the the riffraff out, isolating him from the world, protecting him from anything that might be, uh, that might just be Ordinary. And the way that we find this out is because in verse 20, we're told that at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is the polar opposite of the rich man. Jesus describes him in stark contrast simply as a poor man, a poor man named Lazarus. And we're told that he was covered with sores. We're told that his desire was to eat the scraps, to eat, to eat what might fall off of the table of the rich man. His daily companions were the ones who dropped him at the gate, and then the, also the street dogs that came by to lick on him. Make, make no mistake, Lazarus is nasty. Like Lazarus is gross. He's not royalty, he's not noble, and he's certainly not welcome in the rich man's house. He's there at the gate of the rich man who appears to be totally indifferent to his existence. Just look at how they are described. The rich man is covered in purple and fine linen. Lazarus is covered in sores, right? The rich man feasted sumptuously. Lazarus is desperate for just a scrap from that table. The rich man has a gate surrounding his home. Lazarus makes his home effectively at the gate because he's not welcomed in. Jesus wants us to understand that these two men could not be more different in this world. The rich man has it all. Lazarus is utterly neglected. He's helpless. And make no mistake, we would not naturally want to be around Lazarus. You might feel sorry for him, but your heart does not naturally want him to come and hang out with you. And so we need to be careful that we don't judge the rich man too harshly because not many people with dogs licking their sores get invited into anybody's house. Ironically, unlike the rich man, we do know his name. We do know his name and that's not an insignificant detail. You see, unlike the rich man who is simply called the rich man, we know Lazarus. You and I know Lazarus by name and in that we're being asked to, we're being, we're being effectively associated with him because he's not a nameless face. He's not just a random story. He's Lazarus, which means God has helped and he's the only character that's named in a parable of Jesus. If you look back at verse 22, you see that eventually Lazarus died and you can't help but think that his death was actually a relief uh, for the one who had suffered for so long. I I tell you, it has not been a rare occasion uh, for a faithful brother or sister to ask me to pray for them that God would call them home that God would cease to tell them to live, that God would allow them to come home. It is one one of the most bizarre scenarios that I ever found myself in early in ministry was kneeling beside the bed of actually my grandfather who whispered it in my ear so that my aunts and uncles would not hear. Said, would you just pray that God would call me home? He didn't want him to get mad at me for praying that granddad was gonna die, right? Pray that God would call me home. I've had enough here. I know there's a good room there. I'm ready to go. Let him bring me home. I can't help but think that that's what Lazarus laid beside the gate hoping. And what we know is that he didn't just die. He didn't just cease to exist. But it says that he was carried after he died physically to Abraham's side. He was carried to Abraham's side. And just like Lazarus, the rich man died as well. And so despite all of his privilege... Despite all of the advantage, despite the sumptuous meals, this man was well-fed. Despite all of that at his fine table, the rich man ultimately came to the same end as the poor man. They both died, but only one of them received an actual burial. Did you catch that detail? The rich man also died and was buried. While the body of Lazarus was simply cast aside, simply ignored, thrown on the heap, the rich man enjoyed a fine funeral service. You can imagine the people clamoring to come to this guy's place. He was the man who who had hosted all of these fine meals. He had welcomed people. He was wealthy. He was in a position of power. They would have been lined up outside to come and shake the family's hand at his visitation. And yet Lazarus, Lazarus is just cast aside. So both in their lives and even in their deaths, these two men could could not have been more different. And the same is true in the in the life to come. Look back at verses 22 through 24 real quick. We're told the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You see, even in the life to come, they're still on opposite ends of the spectrum. But now, they're, now their situations are completely reversed. Completely reversed. The poor man, he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. We, we talked last week about the, about the wedding feast of the lamb. The, the idea here is that Lazarus has a seat at that table. He is a seat of honor at that feast. He is there in the celebration, no longer desperate for scraps, no longer being licked by the dogs, no longer left outside the gate. He is there in celebration, enjoying the best meal that heaven has to offer. This one who was left by the gate to die and cast aside as rubbish in this life is now welcomed in and embraced as a cherished child of the king. You see, Lazarus, in his death, now has a home. He has a home. But the rich man, the rich man is not at that table. That's not where he is. He is not feasting sumptuously anymore. No, he's in the place of the dead. He's in in Hades, in torment, desperate for just a drop of water, just a drop of water on his tongue to cool him from the heat of the flames. And so now he is the one on the outside. He is the one in desperation with a great chasm that has been fixed to keep him out of glory. What we can know about this is, is and, and a lot of people use this passage to talk about the doctrine of hell. Uh, here, here's what I will tell you. What we can know from this passage is that hell is real, that hell is eternal, and that hell is really easy to get to. That's where we find the rich man. He's in that place of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the way Jesus has described it. So while Lazarus has been brought into paradise, while he's been welcomed into the eternal dwellings of the king, the rich man has been carried into the raging torment of hell. And if we think back to, to the parable of the dishonest manager, which was in chapter 16 too, we recognize that even with all of his wealth and all of his privilege, he did not use his unrighteous wealth to make for himself friends who would welcome him into the eternal dwellings. He failed to use, he failed to steward those things to advance the kingdom because he had another kingdom in mind. He was too busy with his own kingdom. And so he was not welcomed into heaven and he found himself in hell. As Jared Wilson, a writer, has said, it's very, very easy to be be self-involved all the way into self-destruction. And that's the case with this man. Now we need to remember this parable is being directed towards the Pharisees. Jesus is speaking to those whom Luke describes in verse 14 as lovers of money. And so here, even at this stage in the parable, even at this point in this parable, the rich man is demonstrating a character trait that we might simply call entitlement. It's a character trait that we saw him demonstrate in in this life, and we still see it in the life to come. And so this is how spiritual entitlement works. You see, those who operate from a position of entitlement uh, make two basic assumptions. They assume that, that one, they are, they are good enough. They make the assumption that spiritually I am good enough, and so I'm entitled. And the second one is that, that the spiritually entitled people make is that they deserve better than everyone else. They assume they're good enough and they assume they deserve better. So let's look at these two assumptions in light of this parable. The first being that they're good enough. Here's what I would say. Spiritually entitled people believe they are worthy. They are worthy of affection. They are worthy of comfort. They are worthy of position. They are even worthy of privilege. More than worthy of simply being acknowledged, they are worthy of being celebrated in their minds. Worthy of being embraced. Worthy of being cherished. Because they are good enough already. Spiritually entitled people do not so much need a savior as they need a hype man, okay? They need a cheerleader in their corner with a microphone telling all the nations, telling people from every nation, tribe, and tongue how great they are. You see, they are the best thing going, and if you don't believe that, just ask them. The soundtrack of their life is not so much in Christ alone or amazing grace, but you can tell everybody, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man spiritually entitled people believe that if they are part of your circle, it will be really good for you. It's good for you to have them around you. And so it's the same with God. It's not so much good that God would have them. It's good for God that he gets to have them. Spiritually entitled people do not need grace because they are already amazing. They don't need mercy because if you were to weigh and measure their lives, they would stack up better than everybody else already. And they do not love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength because they have committed all of that energy to loving themselves. John Piper said, a sense of deservedness or entitlement will keep you from knowing Christ. Listen, spiritually entitled people, they probably know all about Jesus. They have been in the church. And if you ask them, it's probably the best church ever because they were in it, right? Right? They know the songs. They don't even have to look at the screen to tell you all the words of the Apostles' Creed. They can tell you that there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament, and they can probably even tell you the names of most of them. They know that Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary. They know that he was raised as a carpenter. They know that he he fed the hungry, that he healed the sick, that he opened the eyes of the blind, and that he welcomed the weak. But they know that none of those describe them. And because of that, spiritually entitled people know all about Jesus, but they do not know Jesus. You see, they don't need to because they're good enough. That's the first assumption. Spiritually entitled people believe they're good enough. The second is that they deserve better. Like the rich man in the parable, spiritually entitled people always deserve better than than whatever you offer. The rich man tells Abraham that Moses and the prophets are not enough. That's not going to cut it. I deserve better than that. My family deserves better than that. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. They aren't going to hear the word of God. They need a miracle. If God would just give me a sign, then I would believe. If God would just get me into a better position in this life, then I would believe. You see, spiritually entitled people always work from an if-then position. If if God would just do this, whatever, whatever that is in your life, then I would believe, then I would trust, then I would see him as worthy of my affection, as, as worthy of my praise, as worthy of my worship. Spiritually entitled people do not need to give to those in need because they worked hard and they earned what they have. They do not need to show mercy because they have no need for mercy themselves because they are awesome A spiritually entitled church does not need to concern itself with the mission of God, the commission of Christ, the advancement of the kingdom, because they are the crown jewel in the kingdom already. They are the pearl of great price. They are the one sheep that was worth leaving the 99 in order to find. They are the lost coin that was worth sweeping the house in order to make sure they retrieved. Spiritually entitled people are the elder sons who do everything right Not to honor the Lord, but to be honored among men. Spiritually entitled people take the best parking spots because they got there first and they deserve better. That's just a pet peeve of mine, sorry. You know, the church is the one place on the planet where the parking lot ought to fill up from the furthest away to the closest as we seek to actively engage in outdoing one another and showing honor. Ephesians 5 says that we're to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If that doesn't have any practical application in your life, please start looking around for opportunities. As many have pointed out, the cry for Abraham to send Lazarus to his family is not really an act of compassion or brotherly love. If we're not careful, we'll read it that way. We'll think, look at this rich man in hell. Now he feels, he feels bad for his family, so he wants to make sure they get saved. But that's really not what's happening here. It's not what's happening at all. You see, what he's really doing here is he's making an implied claim that, that he didn't really have a chance, that nobody did enough to save him. What he's doing when he says, send someone from the dead, send Lazarus from the dead, is he's making an excuse, saying if somebody would have done that for me, I would have believed it's an if-then issue because he deserves better even in his suffering for his sin while he is while he is in the fire of hell begging for a drop of water do you hear a tone of repentance there's no cry for forgiveness now he cries mercy you see mercy without forgiveness mercy without repentance is a false idea it's a false dichotomy in, in and of itself. You see, he's asking for something without wanting to do anything for it because they deserve better. See, spiritually entitled people always deserve better than whatever has been provided. Even in his suffering, he, he's not making one of, he's not making a confession. He's not making a, a, a cry of repentance. It's, it's one of preference. Even in death, in Hades at this moment, he's crying out, for privilege. And so at the end of the parable, Abraham said to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we know this is true because one day Jesus would rise from the dead and they still would not be convinced. And so this now reorients our minds in the direction of our Savior. It was Jesus who was willing to set aside his rights. He was willing to set aside his privilege. He didn't operate from a position of holding on to what was his, but of emptying himself for us. From his very birth, we see the humility of God on display as he carried himself in his great mercy mission, as he walked, not as royalty, not in purple robes and fine linen, but as a commoner as he humbled himself. You see, unlike the rich man who neglected Lazarus and left him outside the gate to die, Jesus tells us in John ten seven that he is the gate, that I am the door of the sheep. Unlike the rich man who neglected Lazarus and allowed him to go hungry, Jesus tells us in John 6, 36, that I am the bread of life and that whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Unlike the rich man who could have served Lazarus in this world, who could have loved his neighbor as himself, Jesus came into this world not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Paul told the church in Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, spiritually, you and I are Lazarus. We're helpless. If not for the one who was rich, becoming poor for us, we would die and be lost forever. We're like Lazarus in that that we are covered in wounds. And we know this. You and I come in here with wounds. We come in here with all kinds of baggage. You probably didn't come in here with a dog licking on you, but you came in here wounded. And you know, the world always seems to know our weak spots the enemy knows right where to go after us. Spiritually, we're Lazarus, but you know what? Spiritually, we're also the rich man. We can easily fall into the idolatry of self. We drift into, we naturally drift into spiritual entitlement, believing that we are good enough, smart enough, and pretty enough. And that honestly, God would be pretty lucky to have us on his team. we constantly drift into the lane of believing that we deserve better than whatever God has to offer. The difference here comes down to one simple reality, and it goes back to verse 20. Jesus knew Lazarus. Lazarus, the one whom God has helped, was known Jesus. Sometimes we get so concerned. We talk in the church so much about, about knowing the Lord, about knowing Jesus, that we need to know him. We forget that it's more important that he know us. And so what we end up with is knowing a whole lot about him, but never being in relationship with him. But when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he goes on to say, I know my own and my own know me. But he says, I know my own first. I know my own. Then they know me. They are welcomed into the fold. They are brought to the table and seated with the saints in glory. Or to take this parable's phrasing, they're carried to Abraham's side. But the rich man, He had the very best that this world has to offer. He had every privilege. He enjoyed the most lavish lifestyle that that we could imagine since Solomon, okay? Surely this man heard those terrifying words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, Jesus doesn't say you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. We invert this far too often and we make ourselves the focus of even our own spiritual journey. Say, I've got to know this. I've got to do this. No, what we need to be doing is begging that Jesus would say, I know you, that you are mine. Because he, te- he tells us that if he knows us that we belong to him, he says, I'll never lose you. See, I know my sheep and they know me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I don't know about y'all, but my spiritual hands are not strong enough each day and each week and each moment to hang on to the Lord myself. I'm very, very grateful that it's he who holds on to us. At the end of our days, when this flesh fails us, and short of Jesus coming back, before then, your flesh will fail you. Before we depart, there are only two options for us. And you need to hear this. It's it's either the eternal paradise of heaven or it's the eternal torment of Hades. And in the end, it comes down to one question. Do I belong to Christ? Am I one of his sheep? Am I one of those whom the Lord has helped like Lazarus? Does he know my name? You see, by grace through faith, we can be known and we can be called home. Instead of I knew instead of I never knew you, we can hear well done, good and faithful servant. And so what I would tell to you is that the one who came in and didn't leave us outside the gate, he actually became the gate for us. And so the door is open. By his sacrifice, Jesus has opened. He has opened that gate for you in his life. Let our prayer this week be, Jesus, know me, expose me, let me see who I am as you see me, that I might rest in the future hope that you have given us by your death and ratified by your resurrection. We're going to celebrate that in a couple weeks. Every church is going to celebrate Easter. It's on your calendar already. You probably have a pastel shirt and a lame tie. It's okay embrace that. Just go with it. We're in the South. It's what we do. We do Easter big. We're going to come in that morning. And instead of saying good morning, we're going to say, he is risen. And then we're going to respond because we know he is risen indeed, right? And that's the only time we ever say that. That is one of the most frustrating realities in the church. Now you can do it, please. Please do it. Embrace it. Go pastel and say that all day. Jesus is just as risen today as he will be on Easter he is just as risen on Good Friday as he is on Easter. The only reason we call it Good Friday is because he's risen. If he didn't, it'd just be another Friday. I want you to walk out of here today with that. Carry the fact that our Savior is alive and that he says to you, he's saying to you today, I can know you. He Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that my faith is weak. I know it's been said before, but my faith is like shifting sand. It is, it is changed by every single wave that lands on the shore of my life. Every peak, every valley, every moment has the possibility of, of, of diverting my eyes away from you. And so Lord, I thank you that your hands are stronger than mine. I thank you that you helped Lazarus, that it wasn't him who helped himself because Lord, I don't know how to help myself. Lord, I pray for those who are here who don't know you. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would. I pray that they would see this opportunity that you've given to them, that they would trust you for their eternal life. Because we're gonna celebrate that. And we're not gonna wait till Easter to do it. God, we're gonna celebrate that on a Monday, on a Tuesday. We're gonna celebrate that every day of the week because we know it's true. Lord, motivate our hearts in that way. Renew us, reshape us, conform us to your image. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.